This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm David Pogue, and this is Christmas Eve. And all over America, families are sitting down to delicious feasts, singing carols, and not listening to podcasts. That's why so many podcasts take this week off or play a rerun. So I don't have a fresh episode of Unsung Science for you today, but I won't leave you empty-eared. I've got a different Pogue Science presentation for you today, a free audiobook excerpt from my latest book, How to Prepare for Climate Change. You're going to hear Chapter 2, Where to Live. 40 million Americans move every year for all kinds of reasons. And if you're among them, you're about to learn how to take the climate crisis into account. Chapter 2. Where to Live You hear a strange phrase from climate scientists these days. The world is shrinking. A period of contraction is setting in as we lose parts of the habitable Earth, writes climate author Bill McKibben. Welcome to the concept of climate migration, where people flee unlivable regions and crowd into the more sustainable ones. For millions of people, climate migration isn't voluntary. When sea level rise floods your homeland, or a superstorm flattens your city, or drought dries up the fields, or wildfires turn your region into a wasteland, you move to survive. Droughts and monsoons have already driven 8 million people out of Southeast Asia. Crop failures have driven millions more out of the countries just below the Sahara Desert. The IPCC estimates that by 2050, about 200 million people may have to move one in every 45 people on Earth. That's a likely number, but the IPCC says that the number could be as high as a billion. And you think anti-immigrant sentiment in richer, cooler countries is high now? Climate change is hardest on poor countries, but there are climate migrants even in the United States. Hurricane Katrina, in 2005, drove about 400,000 people out of Louisiana for good. In the year following Hurricanes Maria and Irma in 2017, about 50,000 Puerto Ricans moved to Florida. In 2018, the most destructive wildfire in California history destroyed 95% of the buildings in the town of Paradise, sending most of its 26,000 residents scrambling to find new homes. And Flagstaff, Arizona, elevation 7,000 feet, 
is enduring such a flood of refugees from Phoenix's blistering heat that locals joke about building a wall. No wonder, then, that a growing number of people are considering relocating voluntarily now while there's time to do it thoughtfully and calmly. People are tired of the heat stress, flooding stress, and, particularly among those who are nearing or at retirement age, the physical stresses, says social scientist Jesse Keenan, who studies climate adaptation and the built environment at Tulane University. People are on the move, not because their house burned down or because it got flooded. They're on the move because they're trying to preemptively get ahead of this. Moving preemptively has some overwhelming logic. The sooner you put down roots in a safer place, the sooner you'll be able to stake a spot, set up shop, and escape the ravages of the new climate. There's a self-interest element, too. The early bird gets a better choice of new home options and a lower price. Who's moving? Moving, obviously, isn't an option for everyone. It costs money. It's disruptive. It requires leaving behind some of your social network. And to be sure, few people are yet moving for climate reasons alone. Lawrence Smith, environmental studies professor at Brown and author of The World in 2050, says, I don't think climate change is the most important factor, not by a long shot. People can and will live in places that are miserable for other considerations, from getting a job to politics. For most people, climate considerations come into play only if most other factors are equal. But 40 million Americans do move every year for reasons unrelated to the climate crisis. Maybe they're graduating, leaving the military, changing jobs or relationships, or retiring. Maybe you're among them, or will be soon. And maybe other factors are equal. Or maybe you're among the growing numbers of people who are freaked out enough that moving to a climate haven is a primary consideration. You wouldn't be alone. Florida State University Associate Professor Matthew Hauer studies the impact of climate change on the distribution of the U.S. population. According to Hauer's research, if the six-foot sea level rise prediction comes to pass, Florida can expect a dramatic population crash. Texas will be the big winner. Tip. Those climate migrants will largely be settling inland in Texas, not along the Gulf Coast, where they'll be smashed by hurricanes. Why Texas? Most American climate migrants move no farther away than a four- or eight-hour drive. Hauer says they tend to move where their family and friends are, as long as they can maintain or improve their economic situation. That's why most of the climate migrants from heat- and hurricane-threatened regions like Louisiana and Florida move to Texas. The Finances of Moving Moving is expensive, but it may also be the investment of the century. Climate change means real estate change, and it's happening fast. To many people, buying a place in a climate haven is looking like an excellent investment. It certainly looks that way to Chinese investors, who in the last 10 years have spent billions of dollars buying up real estate in Canada. Already, Chinese buyers own 14% of all the homes in Toronto and a third of all the homes in Vancouver. For them, owning land in Canada is, quote, a hedge against political, economic, social insecurity, and I think increasingly, climate change, urban studies professor Andy Yan told NPR. Meanwhile, in the United States, 
coastal homes, those that would be flooded by one foot of sea level rise, already cost 14.7% less than identical homes on higher ground. Researchers expect that discount to keep growing. There's one more number to plug into your spreadsheet, insurance rates. In general, they drop right along with your distance from the flood zone or the fire zone. But the biggest reason to consider moving isn't about money. It's about peace. Living through just one extreme weather disaster is traumatizing. It can upend your life for months or years, cost a fortune, and separate you from your home, your job, and everything you own. In the coming decades, some of the world's biggest cities will become unpleasant, dangerous, or even uninhabitable places. If you're even starting to think about thinking about a move, keep listening. The Fundamentals of Climate Havens Before you hunt for the perfect new homestead, accept that every place is affected by climate change. The EPA says, from Atlantic hurricanes to Midwest tornadoes to Western wildfires, no corner of the U.S. is immune from the threat of a devastating climate event. The second half of this chapter identifies 14 attractive climate haven cities in the United States. To understand why they qualify, though, here are the four big rules for choosing a climate-safe home city. Rule one, get away from oceans. If I were looking at a blank slate and deciding where I wanted to live, says Alex Wilson, founder of the Resilient Design Institute, one of the first considerations would be not a coastal area. About 40% of the U.S. population now lives in counties along the 12,000 miles of coasts, the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, or Gulf of Mexico. That's 123 million Americans who should worry about sea level rise and coastal storms. And it's not just about flooding of your home. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, roads, bridges, subways, water supplies, oil and gas wells, power plants, sewage treatment plants, landfills, the list is practically endless, are all at risk from sea level rise. In other words, just because your living room rug is still dry doesn't mean your town is still a fun place to live. If you're having trouble imagining the flooded future, then visit the Surging Seas Maps at ss2.climatecentral.org, where you can see exactly what parts of the United States will be underwater at various sea levels. You can drag the water level slider up or down from 0 to 10 feet to suit your inner pessimist. As you drag, keep in mind that NOAA predicts a sea level rise of up to 8 feet by 2100. Other estimates put the sea level even higher. Of course, the real fun is typing in a particular address and zooming into street level. Take a look at San Francisco, for example. Hint for interpreting the shaded area that shows up. About three quarters of the Mission District is underwater. You can also zoom out to see entire cities like Boston. Just for fun, have a look at Miami. The nonprofit Union of Concerned Scientists calculates that by 2060, a staggering 58.5% of Miami's inhabitable land will be underwater. By 2100, it'll be more like 94%. Miami is going away. Living near the coasts also makes you hurricane bait. As you'll hear in Chapter 12, 
coastal storms are getting much more violent and causing far more damage than they used to. One key reason? The higher sea levels provide a much taller launch platform for storm surges, towering mounds of water pushed onshore by storm winds, and king tides, freakish sunny day flooding about six times a year, thanks to the alignment of the sun, moon, and earth. The seawater flooding from these events is getting deeper and reaching farther inland than before. All right, so what do the projections tell us about flooding risk? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to guess that the communities that will suffer the most are the ones along the oceans and the Gulf of Mexico. In the big where-to-move picture, no factor is more important. You really, really don't want to live in coastal Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, or Texas. The heat will grow increasingly miserable as the decades pass, and hurricanes are already an annual, life-disrupting nightmare. Incidentally, not all of the dangers of living on the coast are gradual or occasional, like sea level rise and hurricanes. Human decisions could change your life dramatically in these regions, and abruptly. For example, says Lawrence Smith of Brown University, State Farm could suddenly decide not to insure Florida anymore, and boom! FEMA could rezone the maps, and suddenly properties could become very difficult to sell. That's an abrupt change, a human decision provoked by the steady sea level rise that could lead to some very unpleasant surprises for retirees or anyone living along the coast. Rule 2. Move north. Just as the surging seas calculator lets you see the future of coastal flooding, the University of Maryland's future climate calculator shows you how hot and wet a city will be. That's at fitslab.shinyapps.io slash cityapp. When you click a city dot on the map or choose its name from a menu, you get to see instantly what present-day city it'll feel like in 2080. For example, if you click Washington, D.C., you learn that by 2080, it will feel like today's Greenwood, Mississippi, which is 9.8 degrees hotter and 75% wetter than today's D.C. And if you click Jacksonville, Florida, you discover that it'll feel like the southern tip of Mexico, practically Belize. Overall, a typical North American city will feel as hot as though it has moved at least 530 miles south. By the 2080s, the authors conclude, the climate of cities in the northeast United States will feel more humid and subtropical the way the southeastern U.S. does today, warmer and wetter in all seasons. Western U.S. cities, in the meantime, will feel more like cities in the desert southwest or southern California, warmer all year long with less rainfall. Plenty of northern cities won't feel bad at all. Future Milwaukee, Wisconsin, will feel like today's Chester, Pennsylvania. Duluth, Minnesota, will feel like today's Cleveland. Seattle will feel like Milwaukee, Oregon, only 150 miles south, about 1.3 degrees warmer. Now, the biggest part of the move north argument has to do with heat, and that's understandable, especially for people who work outdoors. Heat is expected to be the number one killer presented by the climate crisis. But it's not just about heat. One of the cruelest aspects of the climate crisis is that it hits poor regions the hardest. The Gulf Coast states will take a 15 to 20 percent economic hit thanks to rising sea levels, megastorms, intense heat, 
and fleeing populations. The breadbasket states of the Midwest will suffer too, as the higher heat, erratic rainfall, and droughts make farming harder and less reliable. At the same time, some northern counties stand to gain by a few percentage points. Climate change, in other words, only magnifies the wealth inequality of the country. There's another tragic irony here. As the Brookings Institution puts it, many of the jurisdictions that have selected political leaders opposed to climate policy are the most exposed to the harms of climate change. Federal action to curb economically harmful climate change does not necessarily resonate in the places that need it most. How far north should you move? Look at the band roughly above the 42nd parallel, says Portland State University professor Vivek Shandas, who studies climate change's impact on cities. That's a good guideline, both in the United States and in other northern hemisphere countries. Rule 3. Find fresh water. On a planet whose surface is 70% water, you might not think finding water is a tough job. Unfortunately, 97% of it is salt water. It's not drinkable, and it kills crops. And the 3% of water that is drinkable is mostly frozen in glaciers. Over the generations, most towns and cities have worked out ways to tap into water that's drinkable, croppable, and accessible. Some of those sources will be plentiful for centuries. Others, though, won't, including... Snowpack is the snow that accumulates over months of cold weather, usually in the mountains. For thousands of years, the streams and rivers carrying melting snowpack have been an important source of fresh water for humans. For example, 75% of the water used in the western states of the U.S. comes from melting snowpack. Over the last 100 years, we've built hundreds of dams to catch and store the water from the snow that melts every spring. Snowmelt makes Phoenix, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Denver possible. But as the winters grow warmer, there's less snow. And as the winters grow shorter, the snow melts earlier. That's part of why California's in a years-long drought, the worst ever recorded. In a study of 65 years' worth of readings from over 2,000 American weather stations, researchers found that every region of the United States is affected by the reduction in snowfall. Pacific Northwest, Southwest, Great Plains, the Rockies, the Midwest, the East Coast, all are experiencing less snow at most altitudes. By the beginning of 2018, 38% of the entire contiguous United States was in drought. For the Northwest, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington, snowpack loss is a terrifying development. If temperatures continue to rise, there won't be any snow-dominant areas left by 2050. By the 2080s, they'll have disappeared completely. Aquifers Did you ever dig in the sand at the beach when you were a kid? Dig far enough and you'd find wet sand and eventually water. That analogy should help you visualize an aquifer, an underground water layer. It's usually a huge pocket of permeable rock, gravel, sand, or silt, all of it soaked through with water. We can tap into these natural freshwater tanks by building wells, which supply drinking and irrigation water for 2 billion people on the Earth. In the United States, 29% of all freshwater comes from aquifers. 
10 states get over half their water from underground. Mississippi, in the top spot, 84%, Kansas, Arkansas, California, Hawaii, Nebraska, Florida, South Dakota, and Oklahoma at 53%. There are also giant aquifer systems overseas, affecting dozens of countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. In any case, you can probably guess the punchline. As the earth warms and weather patterns change, we're draining our aquifers faster than rain can replenish them. So far, 21 of the world's 37 biggest aquifers have passed that tipping point, according to measurements taken by NASA satellites. The biggest aquifer in the U.S., for example, called the Ogallala Aquifer, supplies a third of the country's irrigation groundwater. It lies beneath eight states, including Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. It's also called the High Plains Aquifer, but Ogallala is more fun to say. As of 2010, we've depleted about 30% of it. The water table is down 300 feet in some places, and Ogallala wells are completely dry in others. At this rate, the Ogallala will be two-thirds empty by 2060. Reservoirs are man-made lakes created by building a dam and a river. They're a critical water source for the western and southwestern parts of the U.S., and there's not a single major U.S. reservoir whose water level isn't down substantially from its historical levels. Here's one screamingly important example. Lake Mead, the 110-mile-long lake created by the Hoover Dam in the Colorado River. It's America's largest reservoir, supplying water to 25 million people in Arizona, California, and Nevada. Las Vegas gets 90% of its water from Lake Mead. Lake Mead is now just over one-third full. Its surface is 1,083 feet above sea level, a 117-foot drop since the year 2000. If the water level drops 33 more feet, the dam won't be able to provide any more electricity, and if it drops 155 more feet, it won't even be able to provide water. We're in the 19th year of a drought, water policy expert Robert Glennon told the Los Angeles Times, and it's pretty obvious that climate change is having a devastating impact. Water shortages are becoming an annual concern in many North American cities. But in some parts of the world, water shortages have become part of life and death. In January 2018, after three years without much rain, Cape Town, South Africa announced that it was three months away from running out of water entirely. The government took drastic measures, banning water for use in swimming pools, on gardens, on lawns, and for washing cars, publicly posting how much water each household was using relative to its neighbors, diverting water from agricultural to urban use, and requiring residents to collect their water in person at 200 distribution centers. Soon, saving water became a point of civic pride. In Cape Town businesses, employees participated in dirty shirt challenges to see who could go the longest without washing their work shirt. These practices averted disaster, but the drought continues, and not just in Cape Town. Summer 2019 brought drought and heat waves that almost completely emptied the reservoirs in Chennai, India's sixth largest city. The government, in desperation, began trucking water into the city's neighborhoods, where hundreds of thousands of residents waited with buckets and vases. 
they carried home their tiny allowances of water, at least when the water trucks weren't hijacked. In other words, if you hadn't yet been associating climate change with water shortages, now's the time. Rule 4. Seek infrastructure. There's another element of climate survivability that people don't talk about much. Wealth. Richer countries have stronger infrastructure, stable governments, complex food distribution networks, drinking water sources, sanitation, medical facilities, emergency systems, communication networks, water purification, paved roads, reliance on imported energy, construction equipment, firefighting teams, agricultural capacity, and so on. That kind of national wealth makes it far more likely that you'll ride out whatever climate chaos dishes out. The University of Notre Dame maintains a list of 182 countries ranked by their vulnerability to climate change. The researchers incorporated 74 sets of data into the ranking, seeking to account for both vulnerability, that is, extreme weather risk, and readiness to adapt, infrastructure, healthcare, food supply, government stability, and so on. By this formula, the top 20 countries for climate resilience are number one, Norway, then New Zealand, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, Singapore, Austria, Iceland, Germany, the UK, Luxembourg, Australia, Republic of Korea, Japan, Netherlands, France, Canada, the US at number 19, and Ireland at number 20. All of these countries are far enough from the equator to escape the devastation of heat waves. Many of them have coastlines, but also offer plenty of livable area inland, far from the coastal ravages of sea level rise and sea storms. And all of them are rich countries, capable of recovering from the worst of what nature dishes out. This study was completed before Australia's devastating 2019-2020 wildfires. In the even longer term, migration experts talk about traditionally frozen expanses like Greenland and Siberia. As they thaw, parts of these regions are expected to sustain agriculture and, because they're vast and sparsely populated today, are capable of accommodating a huge influx of residents. The American Climate Map If you're researching the best places to relocate within the United States, you're in luck. You've got good data to work with. At this very moment, several websites show exactly what kind of nasty weather events to expect. For example, you can see your risk of sea level rise. Visit ss2.climatecentral.org, where you can drag a slider to see the flooding effects of each foot rise in sea level where you live. Flooding. FEMA's interactive map site at msc.fema.gov shows the current likelihood of any address to get flooded. This tool is essential for figuring out what kind of flood insurance you'll be required to carry. Storm surge. The Environmental Protection Agency depicts the depth of storm surges that a certain address can expect for each hurricane's strength, category 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. The computer model the EPA uses to calculate this data is hilariously called SLOSH, Sea, Lake, and Overland Surges from Hurricanes. To find it, do a Google search for EPA Storm Surge Map. Hurricane Frequency that same website shows hurricane data, too. Click the Hurricane Frequency tab. 
heat and rainfall. The Climate Explorer, which you can find by searching for NEMAC, N-E-M-A-C, Climate Explorer, offers the National Climate Map tool, which lets you split the screen. On one side, the historical average temperatures, on the other, the typical future temperatures. Using the pop-up menu at top left, you can change the map so that it's showing rainfall, thawing days, days over 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and so on. State by State At statesummaries.ncics.org, you can click your state on a map to read a detailed report about how its climate has changed in the last 150 years or so and how climate change is likely to affect it in the coming years. Detailed graphs cover each state's susceptibility to heat wave, sea level rise, days of freezing, and a lot more. Brought to you by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But if you're just wondering more generally where to live in the United States, your government is on the case. The Fourth National Climate Assessment is a massive pair of books created by the Global Change Research Program, the GCRP, a group ordered by Congress to coordinate global change research and funding across 13 federal agencies. This gigantic multi-year effort was put together by over 300 scientists, resource managers, educators, business representatives, and experts from governments, laboratories, and universities, reviewed for accuracy by another army of external experts, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and the public, and then released by of all things, the Trump administration. That monumental research effort includes cheery region-by-region summaries of the weather ahead. You can read the full governmental write-ups at nca2018.globalchange.gov, or you can just review the following capsule summaries. Northeast. These states can look forward to the usual litany of coastal woes, Vicious storms, flooding, erosion, and ocean acidification. In the Northeast, sea level rise is expected to be especially bad, with a rise as high as 11 feet by 2100. And where there's flood, there's poop. Many Northeast cities are served by combined sewer systems that collect and treat both stormwater and municipal wastewater, says the GCRP report. During heavy rain events, combined systems can be overwhelmed and release untreated sewage into local bodies of water. Great. There will also be brutal heat. In fact, the Northeast is expected to warm up by 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit by 2035, a faster warming than any other part of the continental United States. The famous fall foliage, once an unforgettable red, orange, and yellow magnet for tourists, is becoming more muted. We have heat, rain, and more clouds to thank for confusing their photosynthetic process. Southeast. These states can look forward to what the assessment describes as sea level rise, increasing temperatures, extreme heat events, heavy precipitation, and decreased water availability. Drought and greater fire activity are expected to continue to transform forest ecosystems in the region. The coastal states here will get the brunt of the hurricane forces every year, causing billions in property damage. Charleston, South Carolina, for example, used to get 11 tidal floods a year when plain old high tide causes flooding. By 2045, 
there will be 180 of them a year. Meanwhile, the oppressive heat is the most lethal climate change force, and in these states, it's matched by oppressive humidity. Thanks to the flourishing of mosquitoes and ticks, tropical diseases and Lyme disease are becoming powerful threats. To make matters worse, these states will become poorer as the northern states grow richer. Midwest. Farming will take a huge hit in these states, thanks to the heat, droughts, thriving insect pests, whose population is no longer knocked out by cold winters, and intense erratic rain patterns. Flooding from intense downpours near the Mississippi, Ohio, and Missouri rivers and their tributaries will make life soggy, moldy, and germy for people who live nearby. On the other hand, the northward and inland positioning of these states will protect their residents from the worst of the heat, and no storm surges exist to wipe out entire towns, and the Great Lakes states are blessed with a reliable, sustainable source of fresh water. Milder winters and longer warm seasons mean more pleasant living, and in some cases, better crop growing. In particular, the northern middle states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, western New York, are shaping up to be the most climate-proof regions in the United States. Northern Great Plains These states, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Montana, are so far from the coasts that they don't enjoy the temperature-smoothing effect of oceans. Wild swings of temperature, rain, and weather will become the norm. There will be more droughts and more torrential downpours. That's all going to make life harder for farmers. Temperatures all year long will rise, but being so far north means you'll be far more comfortable than you would be in the south. The biggest challenge for these states, though, will be access to fresh water. Most of the water for drinking and irrigation in this region comes from melting mountain snow, of which there's less and less every decade, and melting glaciers, which are also shrinking away. Southern Great Plains Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas have always experienced dramatic weather. As the assessment puts it, hurricanes, flooding, severe storms with large hail and tornadoes, blizzards, ice storms, relentless winds, heat waves, and drought. Its people and economies are often at the mercy of some of the most diverse and extreme weather hazards on the planet. As the century unspools, life will get even harder for farmers. There's the heat, which makes it dangerous for people to work outside. In 2018, Austin had a record 51 days over 100 degrees. By 2100, that number will more than double. By then, 1,300 people will die from the heat every year in these three states alone. The warmer winters mean that mosquitoes aren't dying off every year. Cases of dengue fever and Zika are already cropping up in Texas. And then there's the alternation of drought and flooding, which makes it hard for plants to grow. Getting enough water for crops and humans will become increasingly difficult. The assessment's authors anticipate that farmers will have to contend with growing conditions drier than anything these states have seen in over a thousand years. And don't forget about tornadoes. The central corridor of the U.S., Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, North and South Dakota, Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, Colorado, Ohio, and Minnesota, is already called Tornado Alley. During a single week in May 2019, a record 500 tornadoes touched down in a single month. 
One in Kansas was a mile wide. Another in Dayton, Ohio, created so much devastation that city workers had to use snowplows to clear away the debris. So far, nobody's proven a link between climate change and the number of tornadoes. In fact, Tornado Alley is getting slightly fewer of them as the American tornado zone shifts eastward into more populated states. Indications are, however, that they're growing more powerful. As for Texas, well, the Gulf exposure to hurricanes is the big problem. Hurricane Harvey in 2017 ties with Katrina as the costliest tropical cyclone in history, costing $125 billion in damage in Houston and surrounding cities. 107 people died and 30,000 were flooded out of their homes. And if it's not one thing, it's another. Texas is second only to California for wildfires. In 2018, a whopping 10,541 wildfires burned 570,000 acres of Texas, killing cattle, displacing communities, and costing millions of dollars. Model simulations indicate that wildfire risk will increase throughout the region as temperatures rise, particularly in the summer, and the duration of the fire season increases, says the assessment. Southwest. All of these states are facing drought, water shortages, invasive insects, loss of natural ecosystems, and very hot, very dry weather. It's no coincidence that the highest temperature ever reliably recorded on the planet was in the Southwest, 130 degrees Fahrenheit in August 2020 in Death Valley. Let's not forget that the Southwest was the first U.S. region to discover airplanes can't take off during the worst heat waves because the hot air is too thin to provide enough lift for their wings. And, as elsewhere in the U.S., it's getting harder to find fresh water. The population is growing, the droughts are getting worse, and the groundwater is getting depleted. In related news, the Southwest can look forward to more mega-droughts, those lasting over a decade. California, as any Californian can tell you, is special. It has a wildfire problem that's devastating, growing, and so far unsolvable. Coastal flooding and eroding continue to ravage the coastline. By 2100, two-thirds of California's beaches will be gone. The California drought has been dragging on for years, despite new laws that make it illegal to hose off your driveway or wash your car with a hose that has no shutoff handle. By 2100, the annual number of very large fires, 5,000 hectares, or 19.3 square miles, is expected to triple. And climate change aside, don't forget about the big one. The big one. California's San Andreas Fault tends to shake the state once every 150 years. Well, guess what? It's been about 200 years since the last megaquake. California's overdue. Northwest. There's a lot to like about the Pacific Northwest, both now, lush forests, clean air, beautiful views, and in the future. The temperatures will be pleasant, the growing season will get longer, which will help farmers, and while there's less and less fresh water from melting snow in the mountains, melting glaciers mean that water shortages aren't guaranteed. There is, alas, trouble in paradise. 
First, hotter, drier weather and even drought are becoming the norm, a perfect setup for wildfires. But since these states aren't used to wildfires, they've been developed dangerously, with thousands of homes tucked right up against forests. Often, pine trees and other plants grow right up to the sides of houses. There were 194 fires in western Washington state in summer 2019, almost three times as many fires as there were in an average year in the previous decade. And during the catastrophic 2020 wildfires, one-tenth of Oregon's entire population was under evacuation warnings. Second, there's the bug problem. As the earth warms, invasive and destructive insect swarms move northward. Take the mountain pine beetle. Ordinarily, a cold snap of 14 degrees kills them off. But the new warmer winters of the Pacific Northwest have invited population explosions of these beetles, which burrow into trees and kill them at staggering speed. They can kill 80% of a pine forest in less than four years. In Washington state, that's 235,000 acres of forest destroyed every year. And they're just getting started. Alaska. Here's a distressing oddity of global climate change. The poles are warming faster than the rest of the planet. Alaska, in fact, has already warmed twice as much as the rest of the United States. By 2080, Anchorage, Alaska's most populous city, will be 24 degrees hotter than it is now, and three and a half times rainier. The sea ice and glaciers are rapidly melting. So is the Alaskan permafrost. As it turns to mud, houses and other buildings tip at crazy angles. Roads collapse, and sinkholes open up in fields and yards. Alaska has always had a mosquito problem, but the new warming multiplies its awfulness. And, as in the Pacific Northwest, there's now an invasive beetle problem that has killed tens of thousands of trees, which, once dead, become fuel for wildfires. Wildfires in Alaska? Absolutely. 685 of them in 2019. And the problem is getting worse. Since record-keeping began in 1939, only 15 wildfires have burned more than 2 million acres each. But six of them have occurred since 2000. It's probably no coincidence, furthermore, that 2019 was the first time in recorded history that Anchorage experienced a severe drought. You might think that the prospects for farming in Alaska would be improving, but Alaska still has 22 hours of sunlight during the summer and 22 hours of night during the winter, which will always make it hard to grow crops. Finally, as the permafrost melts, travel by ground, whether by wheel or by foot, gets irregular and soggy. So far, Sogginess is not a climate change metric tracked by the U.S. government. Hawaii and nearby U.S. islands All of the ocean-related climate crisis goodies are hitting Hawaii. Warmer water, rising sea levels, coral bleaching, disease outbreaks, coastal flooding, erosion of the beaches and the shoreline. Don't forget monster hurricanes like Lane and Hector in 2018 which dumped 50 inches of rain in Kauai in 24 hours, a U.S. record. Droughts are tough on Hawaii, too, since you can't exactly divert water from the next state over. In recent droughts, 
the Marshall Islands actually had to have drinking water delivered by ship. Then there are the wildfires. Every year, fires burn down half a percent of Hawaii's total land area. That's the same proportion as, or a greater proportion than, in any other U.S. state. The Two Great American Climate Havens The regional summaries you've just heard, no doubt, all sound depressing. But not every place in the United States is trending equally toward misery. Cast your gaze to the regions that obey the four rules of climate havens. Look inland so that you're spared the brutality of hurricanes and sea level rise. Look north to escape brutal heat and drought. Look for reliable sources of fresh water. Look for infrastructure that can bounce back. Where does that leave you in the U.S.? In two places. The Pacific Northwest. The upper left corner of the country doesn't experience the oppressive humidity of the East Coast. Heat waves are less frequent than in most other areas of the country. The economies of the big cities will thrive as climate migrants arrive, and agriculture is getting a boost from the expanded growing season. While the shrinking snowpack is bad news, the Pacific Northwest isn't generally worried about water shortages. It's blessed with two backup water resources aquifers and melting water from the region's 850 glaciers, which computer simulations assure us will flow until at least 2100. And what about sea level rise? After all, Seattle isn't exactly inland. First, much of the land there rises steeply out of the ocean, so it's a relatively small factor, says Ben Strauss, CEO and chief scientist at Climate Central. Second, thanks to a quirk of the tectonic plates, the coasts of Oregon and Washington states have actually risen slightly over the last 100 years, more than counteracting the sea level rise. Finally, the Pacific Northwest is a big place. Lots of it is not coastal. You do have to worry about wildfires and those tree-killing beetle invasions. Otherwise, though, the Pacific Northwest is looking very attractive indeed. The Great Lakes if there's a climate change sweet spot in the United States, this is it. The northern states that get their water from the Great Lakes. They're Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. All of these states have vast, clean, reliable sources of fresh water. They won't endure the blistering heat of the south. And, except for a corner of New York, all of them are far from the coasts, so they won't suffer from sea level rise and hurricanes. Because they're cooler and wetter than the West Coast, they're even less prone to wildfires. The Great Lakes themselves have recently experienced massive algae blooms, some of which kill fish, birds, and turtles, and poison our drinking water. Fertilizer and household cleaning products running into the watershed help to feed these blooms. The affected states have teamed up to study and fix the problem. Otherwise, though, many of the cities on the Great Lakes are ideally suited to life in the new, hotter, drier, rainier world. City by City If you have the option of settling in the Pacific Northwest or the Great Lakes region, you have the satisfaction of knowing that you'll experience the least possible climate-related disruption. Now all you have to do is pick the right city. And yes, it will likely be a city 
Generally, we're seeing more people move away from rural areas and into cities, says Rachel Minnery, Senior Director of Resilience at the American Institute of Architects. We're prepared for more and bigger cities in our future, she says. Today, 50% of the Earth's population lives in cities. By 2050, it'll be 75%. Why a city and not a suburb or the countryside? After all, cities are responsible for 75% of greenhouse gas emissions. And on hot days, cities are where you get the heat island effect, spots much hotter than the surrounding countryside thanks to dark, heat-absorbing pavement, few trees, wind-blocking buildings, massive air conditioner use, and so on. And yet, cities are where the jobs, culture, food, and social life are. And from a climate chaos perspective, the concentration of people in a city means that it will be the first to get protection before an extreme weather event and help afterward. You won't be alone before, during, or after a crisis. Furthermore, moving into a city is also a blow against the climate problem. Relative to suburbs and rural areas, there's more walking, biking, and public transportation in a city. Everything's nearby, so there's less driving. Apartments, because they're all attached, use far less energy than standalone homes do. And, believe it or not, people who live in cities have fewer children than other people. Finally, cities have the money and the expertise to establish cutting-edge programs for mitigation, minimizing climate change, and adaptation, adjusting to climate change. White roofs, rooftop gardens, solar panels, smart buildings, LED streetlights, and so on. American city leaders tend to charge ahead with climate change preparations even when the federal government drags its feet and squabbles. Cities and mayors are the great pragmatists, Adam Freed, an executive at the Bloomberg Associates consulting firm, told GlobalCitizen.org, cities have recognized that there are no Democratic and Republican ways of collecting the garbage. Non-climate considerations. There are plenty of best climate-proof cities articles. Almost all of them, however, make their determination exclusively in terms of avoiding climate awfulness. But being happy in a new place involves many other factors. Consider Anchorage, Alaska, for example, which a New York Times article pegged as a good climate refuge city. It's not, actually. Anchorage's climate plate is piled high with wildfires, invasive species, rising sea levels, and drought. But more important, the recommendation ignores some of the other aspects of Alaskan life that might affect your decision. As one commenter on the story wrote, before you hightail it to Anchorage, you might want to consider the midnight sun. You might think that nearly 22 hours of sunlight are great. It is unusual for most Americans. But then you have to deal with about two or three hours of daylight in the winter. That dark-all-the-time effect may help explain Alaska's high rates of alcoholism and the highest suicide rate in the country. So, what should you consider? Cost of living. The Great Lakes states aren't just the most desirable places to be for climate stability reasons. For now, at least, they represent unbelievable deals relative to the East and West coasts. The median home price in San Francisco, for example, is $1.8 million. In Duluth, Minnesota, it's $178,600. You can spend the 91% you saved 
on a top-of-the-line Tesla, or a whole fleet of them. Infrastructure. How's the city's walkability? How's the airport? Does it have a good public transportation system, enough parks, good schools, modern roads? And what about medical care? Hate to break it to you, but the result of almost every climate change effect is danger to your health. All of that extreme weather can starve you, bake you, drown you, infect you, and burn you. That's why Tulane climate expert Jesse Keenan considers hospitals to be one of the most important factors in a city's climate resilience. He says, The number one fear that I have, and that many people in the national security world share, is that there will be bacteria and viruses. They're already thawing out in the tundra, and that mankind will be exposed to those. He said that in 2019, months before COVID-19 emerged. It's only a matter of time, he says, before we have significant public health outbreaks that are associated with climate change. Future potential. It's not just about a city's infrastructure now, either. If a city's climate-proofness looks good to you, it probably looks good to other people, too. Will it be able to handle the influx? Does it have room to grow? If a city is already reaching the crowding point, its current cost of living, driving commute time, and building density on Google Maps will let you know. And what about the current condition of the city's infrastructure, its buildings, bridges, roads, water, and power systems? Climate change stresses the existing infrastructure. Keenan says, Most American cities are already at the end of their useful lives in most of their infrastructural classes. If you lived in a city from the 1970s through about now, you've benefited from previous generations paying for infrastructure that you are now using. Now we need to build all new infrastructure, and somebody needs to pay for that. The people. Climate change has a tendency to push people out of one spot into another, or to mash people from different backgrounds and regions into the same place. Before you move, you should have some understanding of the kind of citizenry you'll be joining. Is it a diverse population? What's the education level? What's the average age? What's the workforce like? What's the culture like? On a trip to North Carolina, Keenan learned of a startling local demographic phenomenon. In the last few years, a huge number of people have been moving from the Outer Banks inland to Asheville to escape the monstrous storms that batter North Carolina's coasts. He says those people were much higher income and were buying up houses and properties and actually creating cultural conflict. That culture that they brought with them, which was a certain measure of economic entitlement, was in conflict with this kind of rustic hipster mountain Appalachia vibe that Asheville has always prided itself on. Asheville is experiencing a classic example of what Keenan has called climate gentrification, home prices being driven up by wealthier climate migrants. Work. Unless you're retiring, or life's been very kind to you, you'll probably need a job when you move. What does the job market look like in your prospective city? Does this place lean toward one particular industry, which could make it vulnerable when times change? Could you fit in there? If you work outdoors, construction, agriculture, forestry, firefighting, working as a guide, surveying, gas and oil, utilities, heat is an especially important factor. Already, heat and humidity have dropped our capacity to work outside 
by 10% since the Industrial Revolution. It will drop another 10% by 2050 and another 20% by 2100. You do not want to be an outdoor laborer in the South in 2050. Crime rate. Of course, you're presumably moving for the long haul, and factors like the crime rate can change over time. But in the short term, it's a factor to worry about. From a purely climate haven perspective, for example, Detroit looks lovely. Cooler temperatures, plenty of fresh water, nothing to worry about from hurricanes or rising sea levels. But from a shall-we-move-there perspective? Well, Detroit has the second-highest rate of violent crime in the United States. On the bright side, for Detroit, St. Louis recently surpassed it as the most violent city. That's a lot to ponder. In the end, your choice may just boil down to the work you can find or the family connections you have. In the meantime, though, here are 14 cities that are all relatively protected from heat, wildfire, water shortage, sea level rise, and hurricanes, and as a convenient footnote, are also great places to live. For each city, I'll give you three statistics. Its current population, so you can get a feel for its size and metropolitanness. Cost of living, on a scale where 100% is the U.S. average. Average temperature range, just to give you an idea. These numbers indicate the coldest average monthly low and the highest average monthly high based on NOAA's measurements. You can expect that these ranges will slide warmer in the coming years. Also for each city, I'll tell you about its climate plan. Of course, a city's reduction in greenhouse emissions, its mitigation efforts, may not make life more comfortable for you there, except psychologically. But these climate plans are usually coupled with adaptation methods which demonstrate the city's commitment to making life safer during extreme weather events. Finally, this is only a starter list. The world is full of northern, inland, water-rich cities, many of them close to the towns on this list. For every Cleveland, there's a Cincinnati and Columbus. For every Buffalo, there's a Syracuse, Rochester, and Albany. Don't be offended if your city isn't on this list. It's intended to prime your planning engine, to teach you how to assess cities in climate terms, not to imply that these are the only options on the planet. Moving Day No city on Earth will escape the changing climate. Life will get warmer, more expensive, and more dangerous no matter where you go. Knowing the four factors that make a great climate haven, though, gives you two benefits. First, it helps you assess where you might want to live. Second, it makes you aware of where everybody else might soon want to live. Both pieces of insight in their way will help you prepare. The rest of that chapter in How to Prepare for Climate Change describes 15 of the best climate haven cities in America, places that are least likely to suffer from wildfires, hurricanes, extreme heat, or water shortages, and places that are also great places to live, good cost of living, quality of life, cultural amenities, and so on. A lot of them are in the Great Lakes region, cities like Madison, Minneapolis, Ann Arbor, and Chicago. But Burlington, Boise, Denver, and Boulder also make great candidates. 
Next week, it'll be New Year's Eve, and I'll be back with another How to Prepare for Climate Change excerpt. But starting the following week, we'll be back to offering a new Unsung Science episode every week. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.